You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk. With me today is Dr. Eduardo Capapello, who is from the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. We have a special episode where he's going to walk us through his journey of having attained a PhD from the University of Pretoria. Without giving much away, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. So, Eduardo, can you please introduce yourself and the nature of work that you do? Thank you so much, Tatenda, for having me. And I very much look forward to discussing a little bit about my research with you and perhaps others that might um, find it of interest. Um, my name is Eduardo Capapello and I work at the Center for Human Rights just as a project coordinator, specifically working with the Nelson Mandela World Human Rights Mood Court Competition, which we organize in partnership with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and um, also the Academy on Human Rights and Humanitarian Law, which is uh, based at um, the Washington College of Law in Washington. And essentially, the nature of our work is one which focuses very deeply in human rights education and trying to, to create spaces and platform for which you know, young people from around the world can better engage with the international human rights system and the mechanisms that they are for the protection of human rights. I think that's a, a little bit about the uh, work that I do. So you were recently awarded with the PhD from the University of Pretoria. Can you tell the listeners what the journey of pursuing and attaining a PhD was like for you? Yeah, you know, it's, that's an interesting question because I think that um, for, at least for most people that I've spoken to, um, certainly some friends that um, uh, graduated with me, the journey was not only uh, one which kind of allows you to dive deeper into your own capacity and what you're willing to do, um, but one which really, um, you know, puts you in a position to to prioritize and to develop a certain kind of laser focus. Um, I think for me specifically, it was always this balancing act between um, work uh, studies and just life in general because I think it's, it's a journey that can be very lonely at times um, you know you, you're trying to work but you know you're, the writing process is always at the back of your mind and of course other aspects happen in your life but the writing process is always at the back of your mind um, but um, I actually got some very good advice from a colleague um, some years ago just before I started the, the um, the PhD process and um, his name is uh, Martin Sibirwa and he was um, the program manager for the Human Rights and Democratization program um, at the center and he said you know I know that you're starting this this process but just be very sure because something that you don't want is to you know start this process this PhD and then not finish it you always think back on it if you don't finish it and so I think for me that was one of the really important pieces of advice that I got throughout the process and which nourished me as I as I reached those dipping points um, over the years of thinking you know is this really worth it um, 
you know, is it really worth the gray hairs and the, and the back and forths with supervisors, of which I think I had um, one of the best uh, supervisors, uh, Professor Magnus Kilanda, who was very patient uh, with me and who was very supportive of, with me as, as I went through the process. So the journey for me was not an easy one, but as I look back, it was one which was so worthwhile. What issues did you focus on in your research and what impact will this work that you, you know, focused on have on the work that you do? So for me, I, I understand the world by looking at systems and structures. And, and I think that that's an interesting thing in the sense that we all have these different um, vantage points through which we look at the world. And for me, I felt that I can make some kind of contribution by looking at how structures influence social systems, you know, how structures influence people and just, you know, the average person on, on the street and politicians and, 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 and whatever else. And so, you know, because I come from Angola and um, I understand the realities of, of, of Angola, I was looking specifically at how is it that, you know, the institutions of the state can work towards preventing violent conflict. In particular, how is it that they could be engineered, so to speak? I think to a large degree, you know, because my, 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 my research was one of an interdisciplinary nature, I was thinking in the sense that a lot of the research perhaps in political sciences and international relations and law is one which is kept on, on its own box. I feel like the methodology is one which is very strict, um, but I suppose that's how you know, disciplines to a certain degree in their space. But I wanted to expand it and I wanted to really see how it is that these disciplines can somewhat merge and how is it that um, we can find hopefully different, different answers. And so I looked at um, how state institutions can be designed, can be structured to prevent violence. And, you know, as, as I was going through the writing process, a lot of my assumptions were challenged. And, you know, a major part of research, they say, is that, you know, if you come up with a question, make sure that you don't have an answer for it. It's one that you develop. It's one that comes up as you research. And that's something that worked for me, rather something which I realized. And so in the end, I feel that my study adds some kind of value in three particular aspects. And so the potential value of the study, I feel that it's far-reaching scope and it mirrors the interdisciplinary nature of the, of the research which I tried to conduct, especially when we look at African institutional challenges and the fact that they are best understood using a holistic approach because of our, our developing societies which face complex and multidimensional challenges. So this holistic approach which, which, I, which I use in the research, I hope that it's one which really plays a role in informing and somewhat addressing and perhaps serving as a reference point to other researchers in, in the field of who are researching African institutions. And the second um, impact or value added, I, I feel that it would be for scholars of comparative politics and state building in the African continent, because I feel that, that to a large extent, you know, Africa is rife with uh, post-independent systems where a single political party enjoys almost unchallenged power, as the case in Angola. And the blurred lines between party and the state, and in some instances, you know, blatant privatization of the state, have dire consequences for the democratic credentials of the country. And in this particular process, civilians are usually the net losers. 
And this can be witnessed by the high incidence of, of negative peace and interstate conflict in the continent. And, you know, I have spent many years in South Africa and, um, I, th- you know, to a certain degree, I hope that this study also gives value for South African scholars and researchers, especially um, the fact that my research, you know, I studied the analysis of the democratic deficit inherent to Angola's proportional uh, list system, which South Africa uses as well. And an interesting aspect is that the Angolan constitution, the 2010 constitution, I believe that they were very much, you know, influenced and inspired by the South African model. And so I felt that this is this can perhaps highlight to South African scholars what can be the, the, the weaknesses of this proportional list system, um, especially at a time when social movements are having more energy than ever. If we look at places like, for example, you know, the Arab Spring, I think it is quite timely to ask whether the locus of power should be, you know, the dominant political party rather than in the citizenry more broadly. I think that's a question that, you know, perhaps now and even in the coming years, many, many countries will, will have to deal with. You know, if we look at the reality of South Africa and, uh, and, the, and the ANC, and of course, taking contextual and historical historical aspects into consideration, is it really justifiable that, you know, the parts like, you know, the ANC maintains um, so much power and is, you know, is in a position that it is after so many years? You know, what are the effects of that in the overall political system? What are the effects of that um, on South Africa's institutions? You know, again, we've already seen with this, you know, uh, state capture report how the blurring lines between, you know, parties and state can can play a real havoc and can undermine the democratic legitimacy uh, of a country. So that's something which is which I feel is quite important to to really look at. And finally, I think that in in the field of uh, conflict resolution. It is suffice to say that unresolved conflict remains um, one of the biggest hindrances um, to development in Africa. You know, in Angola's historical context, um, as I provided in, in, in my research, is one which um, not only influenced our, you know, the current reality that the country faces now, but I think the points of intervention which which I which I suggested uh, might be a suitable way to to deal with those issues, especially within post-colonial or other post-conflict situations. Um, but, you know, I stressed very much in my thesis that when applying certain 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 forms of, of remedies, it is always important to have a look at the context because I'm, I'm of the strong belief that, you know, this one one shoe fits all. I think I'm not sure that's the, the, the term, but it doesn't work. You know, different remedies would work um, best in different places and um, applying one one particular stretch to, you know, a totality of, 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 of circumstances, that's that's usually a recipe for disaster. And so I think essentially it is really important to have African scholars, you know, critiquing African political legal systems and thereby not just rehashing these Western-centric notions about what Africa ought to be. Um, and so that's something that um, I hope that I, I, I did to a certain extent um, you know, if if, if um, readers don't 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 um, perhaps agree, I I, I, I hope um, have a conversation with them and perhaps um, elaborate. Um, 
But that is the value that I hope that um, my research has added. And I hope that um, people use it and people perhaps reflect on it and perhaps build upon it as well. Um, because a lot of, I do understand the limitations of my research in the sense that, and as I said from the beginning, I, I understand structures and institutions. You know, at the very core, there is also a need to deal with the local, right? How is it that these structures impact the individual? And how is it that, you know, this, you know, this somewhat overarching structures that I've proposed, how is it that they then impact the person on the ground? And so I think that while my research tends to look at these institutions from above, I think that in the end, it can't fully work without more research, um, almost coming from the bottom to address real, I suppose, singular issues. For example, how is it that, you know, local elections work? You know, and this is not something which I've which I've addressed in my thesis because I had a very particular goal. And so I, I, I really I really hope that, you know, Angolan scholars really take up this proposal that I have and kinda perhaps build upon it or challenge it, critique it. It's a process which is important and I think it's a process which I feel will lead to us better understanding our societies and the systems under Actually, I just wanted to find out, um, what's the title of your research and is it available for download for those who would like to read it? Yes, so the title of the thesis is The Role of State Institutions in Preventing Violent Conflict in Angola. And um, I think it should be on the University of Pretoria virtual space. I, I, I do believe that it's, it has been made public, but I'm not sure if it's readily available at this stage. In your response to the question I asked earlier, and from what I picked up in your research going through it, is that your research embodies various aspects of good governance, constitutional and human rights. What is the correlation between good governance and the state's ability to fully protect human rights? I think it's essentially, you know, I, at least for me, I believe that the existence of the state is to promote and protect human rights. I think that's that's the that's the basis of a state. And you know, we can have a very realistic definition of what the state is, you know, and what the state is meant to to do. For example, aspects like um, you know, the state um is the holder of legitimate violence and it can impose its will and, and we can even go deeper into you know, into philosophy and and looking at, at you know, at the writings of Hobbes where he says he speaks of the state of nature and, and how, you know, instead of nature, life is nasty, brutish and short. And in order to escape the state of nature, we have to kind of give up some of our rights to the state um, so that the state can protect us, which is it's very fine. But at the same time, um, the state has these structures and what should be its main objective is that individuals are kept safe and that their rights are defended but of course as well balancing them with other individual rights and other people's rights and the governance architecture of the state is then very much um you know intertwined with the reason with the reason or the, the focus and the and the purpose of the state and so i think you know it's it's a very strong relationship with the governance structures and you know the reason for the state and states need to govern in a way in which they of course both it's efficient in a way that it's legitimate but that legitimacy is one which is derived from the people that they serve um, and so I feel that it's two concepts which are very much interlinked and cannot be divorced. But of course,
course, it has to be done in a good way. It has to be done in a in a in a legal way. And then this is one, of course, again, the overall idea of institutions come in because institutions, I think, to a certain degree, also then regulate governance uh, practices by individuals. Um, they also regulate and limit power of, of those individuals. For example, how is it that a state governs its people or its institutions or its resources? In your thesis, you mentioned that overly centralized states have a hand in contributing towards the emergence of conflict. What features of the Angolian state um, make them more susceptible to violence and making them fail to prevent conflict? Mm-hmm. And as you try to answer this, can you also explain to us if there are similarities in these features of the Angolan state to other African states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, it's, 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 it's a very context-driven question, right? And um, if we look at the Angolan state, we can see from its constitution the way that power is centralized around one body, one political body, which is the executive. And even though there is, you know, a Bill of Rights which protects fundamental rights and freedoms, there is almost this chokehold on the Bill of Rights to the extent that the executive has way too many powers. Essentially, the president can rule by decree um, in Angola. And there is no real or tangible points of holding members of the executive to account. You know, in some countries, for example, parliament is a very strong body in which it can call the president, it can call its its ministers to answer questions on how it is that they have been running the country, or rather any question which, which is in the purview of the state. Um, but in Angola, unfortunately, this is not the case. This is not possible. Um, there was a, a constitutional court decision which said essentially that parliament has no powers to call on the president or the president's ministers to answer questions posed by parliament. And this is, you know, it's phenomenal because how does this happen and how how is this possible? And so already you, you can have a look at, you know, at how power is structured. And a second point as well is that the Angolan system, so Angola is a highly centralized country, both politically and also territorially. Um, in the sense that Angola has 18 provinces and the president has the power to appoint the governors of those provinces, as opposed to perhaps having a process in which the people of those provinces can elect their representatives. And this is something which I've also argued for in my thesis and proposed. And I propose that perhaps it might be a better idea to have a decentralized country. And of course, I'm not saying that we should go into a federal state per se, but rather we should be decentralized to the extent that you know individuals can actually run for office, that individuals can actually be elected by the people in the provinces which, which they live in. And I think this is an important process as well, because it doesn't seem like it's it's someone, you know, from, it's like you have this high authority appointing someone to rule over you. I feel that this is something which is almost very colonial in the sense of, you know, the act of a king appointing a governor to govern over this indigenous population. And I use this, I may say indigenous in, in quotation marks. And so I think this is another way in which power is highly centralized. In, in the Angolan system, there is also not a process of local elections. 
um, again, even, you know, the, the, the election of a mayor or so, it's not something which is done. And I think this is, again, a way in which power is, is highly centralized and kept. And so I feel that by decentralizing politically and decentralizing territorially, I think it would really work towards um, diffusing power. I think that you know, power is not something that should be um, vertical design from top, you know, to down. But perhaps I, I, I like to view power, and I think this is in a sense of a philosopher, a political theorist, Michel Foucault, I hope I have his, his name correct. And, you know, he made this argument that, you know, sometimes power should be in a circle, you know, it's always moving. And that's something which I try to also add. And if we look at other African countries, you know, it's, it's startling that in many ways, this is the reality in many, many other African countries where power is so centralized. And of course, something that I should have mentioned in the case of Angola as well is also the nature of the of security services, right? Um, the abuses that they commit, it's simply terrible. And there aren't really any, if many, if any um, um, institutions which would have um, these, these organizations held to account. And I think that this is a terrible thing. And I think that it can lead to more violence and more conflict because I believe that there's a threshold. There's only so much that a people can take, that a people can endure before, before revolting. And perhaps this, you know, in a form of a just revolution. And, you know, I, I would never condone violence, but I think that there are situations in which just revolutions could come about. And if they do, uh, to a large extent, it is then the failure of the state in creating a, a context in which individual rights and freedoms are protected and respected. Um, so just jumping back to similar countries with, with a highly centralized state in the African continent, I'll I would say certainly, um, you know, Uganda is, is one of them. Egypt is another, and and so many others which have these features. And many of these countries, you know, at least the two that I've mentioned, they have underwent very intense political turmoil. If you recall, not so long ago, in Uganda, the elections, the presidential elections, were not necessarily a peaceful one. Of course, even though people did not um, go to the streets with guns, well, to a certain extent, I suppose, again, it does not mean that it was peaceful and, uh, and fair and transparent. We still see a lot of, of manipulation. We still see a high level of discontent in, in such countries. And, you know, this discontent, I, I feel, is one that is very dangerous if not managed properly within a, a human rights paradigm, of course. And this is, of course, the responsibility of states. But I say that with a pinch of salt because I feel that as individuals, especially as Africans, we have, you know, for a very long time, for many centuries, been subjugated to, you know, first colonial rule. And then again, it's just my view is that I feel that to a large extent, liberation movements have kind of taken up that mantle of the colonialists to a certain degree. And and are using similar tactics to do to undermine the African people. And you know, and, and if I look at instruments like like the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, and I, and I look at the uh, Constitutive Act of the African Union, you know, one can extrapolate that as Africans and and because of our history, there is not only a right, but there is a duty to a just revolution. And so, you know, these are cases which will play out, I think, in the next few years. And you know, it is my great hope that we don't go back to a state of violence. And of course, many, many states are already in that kind of situation. But 
you know, in, in one end, nothing justifies violence by civilians, right? But on the other hand, as well, nothing justifies uh, violence from the state towards civilians and individuals. And so this is something which is very difficult to reconcile. How do you deal with it? And I hope that, um, you know, we find ways to bridge those, those very contentious problems. Thank you. I hope I hope I was able to answer that. Yes, you did. And um, I'm just remembering now <laughs> in my studies as well of political science, I am a political science graduate. I think there was a there was a quote by Martin Luther King that says violence begets violence. It was in the context of um, violent participation and violent protests. But I'm starting to see that I think that statement also reflects on the fact that there is structural violence that takes place. As you were saying, you understand the world from institutions and systems. So I guess part of what you're trying to say in your research is that should there be um, structural violence or institutional violence in one way or the other in a way that affects socioeconomic rights or civil and political rights, there is bound to be unrest and general violence and instability in the state, which is a vicious cycle because the more there is violence, the more people fail to be able to recognize and their rights. So I'm not sure if we're on the same path, but this is what I pick up from your... Yeah, I mean, you know, Definitely. And, you know, I, I think essentially I, you know, as I was conducting the research, you know, I tried to be very cognizant of Angola's history and also my own, my own history and that of my family um, in the sense that I come from a country which went through 30 years of civil war. Um, and so I kind of saw this problem and, and I said, you know, we've left a 30 year old conflict and people are still very much suffering. Right. And how is it that one can give a proposal without going back to an armed conflict? So in my thesis, I very much try to be careful to never say that people should pick up arms and fight the state. But I try to, to build this story, so to say, that, you know, this is our reality. This is what is happening right now. You know, people are being, you know, the human rights of people, peoples are being violated. The state is using violence against its people. The state is not providing for the most basic of, of needs for the people. The state is, um, well, the state is not doing the right thing. And so I said, okay, well, this is our reality now. How is it that we can actually do something better? And I think it was my attempt to to transmutate this ideal into the reality. And so I say, perhaps we can do this so that maybe this can be better. And, and that, that is essentially my hope for many contexts. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Martin Luther King and, um, and, you know, the point that violence begets violence. And, you know, it's something which I... I no, I fully agree. And um, and this is where this discontent comes in. But at the same time, it's so interesting because, you know, Martin Luther King also, there's this quote um, by him. And, and he said this, I think it was just uh, a, day or, a day or two before he was shot and killed. And he says, and I quote, and I hope that I'm quoting him correctly. If not, I, I do apologize. Um, he says... America, of course, quote, he says, America, all I ask is you do what you say on paper, end quote. Essentially saying that, you know, this is what you've committed yourself to doing. You know, there's this constitution, you know, provides these rights. There is this, there are these structures that you've signed and you have willingly submitted yourself 
to doing. So now just do it. You know, you've committed to it. So do it. Why is it that um, you only do this for a certain fragment of the population? And so for me as well, and I think, in, you know, for, for many African countries is that, you know, they have committed themselves to so much, committed themselves to, to international human rights law. They've committed themselves to proper governance, to establishing proper governance architectures. Many African countries, you know, including Angola, have, have, have supported, you know, Agenda 2063. And so, you know, why don't you do what you've committed yourself to? And and to a certain extent, you know, this, this research is also a reflection on that, saying that this is what you have said you will do. And I see that you haven't done it yet. Okay, so here is a structured way in which you can begin. And so this is... It was my hope that that this, to a certain degree, can be one of many blueprints that that can be reflected on, and who knows, maybe even used by someone someday. I hope so too, and I really appreciate your response when you're talking about things that are written on paper versus what actually happens on the ground. Because for someone who was who would be listening off the top of their head, you would assume that Angola doesn't have most African states don't have a constitution which de- describes decentralization of states. By that, I'm, I'm talking about the three arms of the government, for example, the judiciary, the executive and the legislature. And these things are actually there on paper, but in practice, find that it's a different ballgame altogether. And I, I appreciate your response with that. Moving on to the next question, I'd like to find out what has been the role of international legal and institutional frameworks in assisting the state of Angola to be in a position to protect human rights? I guess that's such a such an interesting question and a very and one which is you know it's, it's so important because if we look at international international organizations you know if we start at the very you know at the very top at the global level the United Nations the United Nations has so many conventions which which highlight the you know the minimum standards you know so we have the you know, at the UN level, the global level, we have the United Nations Charter, and then of course we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is already almost like the, one of the main instruments um, all rights are taken from. And already, just through, through the UDHR, you know, states already have this kind of platform through which they should create this environment in their own countries. And there are so many others. We have the International uh, Bill of Rights, which is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and um, the International Covenant on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights. And particularly if we look at, for example, at the, at the first, uh, the ICCPR, and we look at issues of just, you know, the right to life, you know, the right to political participation, the right, it's very basic rights, which many states unfortunately still don't promote and protect. And so at the international level, and of course we also have at our regional level, the African Union level, a number of, of instruments and frameworks which are very specific in establishing how it is that states should function and how it is that's what states should do to establish the conditions for which their people can thrive. And so international organizations have created such wide a wide context and a lot of blueprints and a lot of literature on how it is that states can actually be better and do better for their populations. And I think that's something which is fascinating. I always think back of, you know, if you look at the Human Rights Committee, for example, and the general comments which they have, and they try to really interpret what 
certain rights are, right? And, and what it is that states must do and how certain rights uh, should be uh, respected. I'm sure you know this, um, you know, our late uh, Professor Christoph Haynes, he worked uh, extensively with, with um, the Human Rights Committee and, you know, he developed general comment on, on uh, the right to peaceful assembly. And this was such a groundbreaking work in the sense that, you know, he and other colleagues, they crafted exactly what it means, this right to peaceful assembly, you know, and, and this rights of individuals to protest and exactly how it is that a state should should act in light of this. And so, you know, at, at the international level, at the regional level and at the sub-regional level, there are all these materials that are there. But unfortunately, we, we see a, a lack of willingness by many African countries and Angola as well to not only ratify these these instruments, but then adopt them into their national legal, you know, at times when they do adopt them in their national legal systems, we still have these, you know, these violations because unfortunately institutions are to a large extent either very weak or they are geared towards a certain way. And this is, again, a question of power and a question of question of how to deal with that power. And then it goes back again. How is it that we can actually build institutions that that um, actually follow not just the law, but laws based on human rights, laws which promote and protect human rights. So that's the question. So, you know, at the international level, we do have these mechanisms. But unfortunately, there's still a lot, of, a lot of failure in implementing what is there and what works. What remedies can be taken to reform state institutions to ensure they perform their roles and duties of ensuring and protecting individual rights for the benefit of citizens? Mm. No, I, uh, you know, first again, you know, it's a very contextual question because it depends on, on which country one would have to work in. But um, just in the context of my research, I think it's essentially first equalizing the, the political power that the constitution gives to the executive or to the president or the holder of executive power or authority. That's one. Um, the second one is um, promoting as a, a state of political and territorial decentralization in Angola. That's two. And then we go deeper into the reform of the institutions themselves. And, you know, through my research, I proposed that parliament needs to be broken down so it reflects the realities of, of Angola. Um, so when I say broken down, I mean in the sense that, you know, from a unicameral system, we break it down into a bicameral system and this will also then reflect the new nature of power through the territorial decentralization and so it's also important to establish you know, a culture of human rights and this is done through education human rights education and making sure that people are aware of what their rights are um, unfortunately to a large degree people don't know what their rights are and what they're entitled to and then of course you know a much bigger step is reforming security institutions and this is the military this is you know, especially the police and you know I think you, you would appreciate that for example in South Africa the police has been very violent right and I think this is also because of the nature of the police you know the police almost during apartheid it was the I suppose you know the baton of the apartheid state in the context of Angola you know the police many many police officers were just demobilized from the military and policing without any real context and perhaps even knowledge of what policing was and how policing policing should be within within the confines of a democratic state so those are some remedies to that I would just put out there to begin this reform process what would you say to those organizations 
those individuals and stakeholders who would like to reach out to you to for different kinds of collaboration on what to do to prevent violence in in the state and could you also give your concluding remarks yeah so you know i think for those wanting to reach out i am you know i'm very open to discuss and to potentially collaborate in 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 research and, and, and projects. I think, you know, I think that you have my email address, which you can share, of course, if however way you see fit. But I'm very open to conversation. I'm very open to, you know, especially critique and perhaps how things can be done better. And certainly there are many nuances and many ways and perhaps even aspects that I do not think about in the context of this research. And so I welcome that discussion. I welcome, you know, those those constructive criticism. And I, I welcome you know, to discuss more with anyone who, who is willing to engage with me in those regards. And so in conclusion, um, I, you know, for me, I, I, I strongly feel that when people are dissatisfied, um, you know, when people endure violence and when people endure humiliation to this extent of great violations of rights, you know, when people endure this grand corruption that is, seems to be a, a part of, of many of our countries, when people endure you know, the dehumanizing aspects of, you know, not having not being able to put food on the table or not being able to get access to medical care, basic medical care at times. That is not only a failure, but it is something which I feel creates this pressure cooker. And of course, many things can be put into that pressure cooker as well, but it creates a very dangerous context in which when pushed too far, I think people can, you know, there is a possibility to resort to violence. And I feel that at this stage right now, states have the widest scope to prevent that. And, you know, all the tools are at their disposal. And it is my hope that um, many start using those tools that have been placed, you know, at their feet, so to speak, um, and find better ways to promote human rights in their countries and to ensure that people are respected and that dignity is restored. Yeah. So thank you, Tatenda, for your questions and for the time. Thank you very much, Eduardo, for taking part in this podcast interview. For those who would like to email Eduardo for further collaborations, you can email him on eduardo.capapello at up.ac.za. I will definitely put up his email address and contact details in the podcast blurb. Thank you very much for listening and uh, join us again in our next episode.
This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.